It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, and welcome to the Red Box podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. To remain or leave the EU? That's the question for this week's show, and our panellists are here to answer it. Opposite me, we've got columnist Melanie Phillips and The Times Chief Political Correspondent Michael Savage. Plus, on the line, live from Brussels, is our Brussels correspondent Bruno Waterfield. This is what we are talking about this week. David Cameron may not have got much of a new settlement for Britain, but that's the nature of the European Union. If you don't change the treaty, you change nothing. But he has certainly transformed Europe's political landscape. EU leaders and elites are trembling that the referendum genie is out of the bottle and at least one more country is expected to follow his example of demands for reform, followed by a plebiscite on membership within the next two years. David Cameron has unilaterally redefined sovereignty. Apparently, to him, self-government is worthless. Real sovereignty means instead the ability to make deals. He's thus effectively negating the core problem with the EU, that it was founded to suppress democracy in the interests of preventing fascism. But far from ushering in the brotherhood of man, this merely makes extremism more likely. It seems a lifetime away, but the UK's political scene could look rather different after the EU referendum result comes in. In fact, it could be carnage. UKIP could face an existential problem, as well as a change of leadership possibly. A divided Tory party will be preparing for a leadership race. Labour remains preoccupied with internal splits and the Lib Dems are still on political life support. So who or what will come along to offer leadership in this political apocalypse? So let's start with you, Bruno, and what happened in Brussels on very, very late on Friday night after a lot of hanging about. David Cameron finally got his deal, but as a result, you think other EU leaders will demand something similar? I think that's the worry. I mean, it's not to completely downplay the deal the Prime Minister uh, got. It was, it was substantial enough at 4.30 on Friday afternoon to François Hollande to threaten to walk out of the summit and say we'll be back next month. So it was a difficult deal him to get. And the real underlying problem for other EU leaders, especially Hollande, thinking about soaring levels of Euroscepticism in France, is that other opposition politicians and voters themselves in other European countries will be saying, why can't we do that? There was opinion polling out yesterday in the Netherlands showing that 53% of Dutch people would now like to have a UK-style referendum um, after a renegotiation. Donald Tusk, who chairs these meetings, made the point to Mr Cameron, as did other people, including Angela Merkel, that they're worried that the Netherlands, Denmark, Poland, and possibly even Italy or France 
um, will make these kinds of demands following elections over the next couple of years. Is that likely to lead to much bigger and wider and dramatic change in the European Union, do you think? Could, could, it, could it actually, because you know, there's an argument about David Cameron changing Britain's relationship with the EU, but the EU as a, as a body seems to, is largely going to carry on as it was. But, but if lots of countries start demanding change, that could, could have a bigger impact? Well, I think that's the problem, is, is, is that, yes, you know, the, the, the David Cameron's carved out a, a special uh, deal for, for, for Britain. The content of it is not, you know, hugely uh, revolutionary. Uh, but he has let the genie out of the bottle. Remember, back in 2005, the French and Dutch voted no um, to the EU constitution. And on the whole, apart from uh, a Lisbon Treaty referendum in Ireland, referendums have been avoided. He's very much put that back on the political menu. And bear in mind, in Britain, um, Euroscepticism is, is, is pretty tame compared to the sort of incandescent rage that a lot of people on continental Europe feel after the Eurozone uh, crisis, which has been very um, unpleasant. People have had to pay out money or they've had very bossy Danes and Finnish officials coming um, and telling them how to make cuts. You've also got the migration crisis where people are blaming the EU for complete collapse of uh, 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 collapse in uh, Europe's borders. So on the continent, there's a lot of anger um, about uh, the EU. And EU leaders are very, very worried now that now Britain has renegotiated the rules. The cry will go out, why not us? And if you look in a lot of countries, you can see this as a real possibility. A Eurosceptic government um, in Poland, Denmark is much more uh, Eurosceptic. There is elections coming up in France with an insurgent uh, Marine Le Pen, who is already uh, calling for a referendum. Mar- uh, Matteo Renzi in Italy is already saying if David Cameron can get an easing of the EU rules for Britain, why shouldn't Italy have an easing of the Eurozone rules? So you can see there's already a sort of a bit of an unravelling and a real potential for demands for votes and reforms to spiral out of control. What do you make of this, Melanie? Do you think the genie's out of the bottle now? I think the genie probably was out of the bottle already, but I can see exactly why the European leaders are concerned, and they're right to be concerned. I say that it was out of the bottle already because Bruno mentions quite rightly, you know, migration. And then there's, you know, the sort of instability of the euro, you know, the Greek crisis hasn't gone away and so on. And, you know, there is an argument for saying that the EU is based on a set of fundamental contradictions which are always eventually bound to implode, of which the uh, the fiction of uh, a common polity uh, represented by a common currency was always considered to be the key problem. Now we can see the migration, the open borders core policy of open borders uh, through mass migration is possibly the problem that's going to really uh, destroy the the whole rationale of Europe. So you have a fundamental instability anyway. Um, and there are people who think, and I don't know whether this is the case, but there are people who think that, you know, the EU is doomed anyway. It's a matter of years before it finally sort of collapses. And Bruno again mentions, you know, quite rightly, the uh, he called it incandescent rage among the populations of Europe. Again, it's a foundational principle of the EU that people subordinate their own nationhood in the common interest of preventing war in Europe from ever happening again. And now we see that the suppression of democracy in Europe has produced uh, the rise, the increasing rise to power, in some cases alarmingly so, of ultra-nationalist and worse political parties. So uh, you have that very much not on the horizon, but here already, uh, the prospect of real extremism in Europe. 
And it's interesting that although the Eurozone crisis is by definition mostly affected the poorer parts of Europe, the thing about the immigration crisis is it's right at the heart of the most powerful countries, France and Germany especially, oh. have got it right, you know, it's happening right there. And so it's, it's a much more live crisis, if you like. And absolutely live crisis at the heart, not just of prosperous Europe, but the heart of the country around which Europe was, con- the EU was constructed, which is Germany. I mean, it is an astonishing thing to me to see what Angela Merkel has done because she has basically detonated, possibly, uh, the destruction of the Europe that she so desperately wants to preserve, the, the EU that she de- so desperately wants to preserve in order to neutralise her own country. Um, and the reasons why she did that, the reasons why she basically said, let them all come in. Uh, with these disastrous effects are, I think, many and various, and I wouldn't purport to know to know all of them. But I would I would I would expect that part part of it was the fact that Germany's own birth rate uh, has taken a dive. They can't afford to continue with their own uh, welfare state, as it were, and she thought that you know immigrant labour would actually do the trick. Uh, missing one or two points along the way, <laughs> and also I think you know this may be fanciful, but I think you know historic guilt. Mm. to kind of expunge the historic stain of Germany's terrible past by bringing in as a matter of you know humanitarian assistance uh, the, the you know the, the 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 oppressed of the world yeah i wanted to ask bruno about this this point about free movement actually because during this whole eu debate we've had here uh, the questioning free movement is not a road that david cameron ultimately went down but it it seems to me that even in the medium term, never mind the long term, this whole question of free movement is now, it feels, is, is feeling unsustainable. Now, in Britain, concerns about free movement were sort of accelerated in 2004. There were no transitional controls on Eastern European migrants coming to Britain. That tra- transformed many communities across Britain. Other countries had transitional controls, so the effect wasn't so great. But I just wonder how this immigration crisis, refugee crisis on the borders of Europe is now affecting that debate on the mainland continent. And I just wonder if Bruno thinks that maybe this question of free movement is now far more open for question and is perhaps not sustainable even in the medium term. The interesting thing, I mean, this is again one of these paradoxes. The interesting thing is actually migration from Eastern Europe predominantly was much more questioned in European countries ranging from the Levens to Germany to Denmark, uh, Austria, um, was much more questioned before the migration crisis. So the migration crisis, which is, of course, um, people, um, either asylum seekers or irregular um, immigrants from outside Europe, tends, has tended to submerge um, that kind of uh, discussion. That doesn't mean that it's not still bear, but I think it's the, the migration crisis is a completely different order of discussion. After all, the big wave of migration into Europe of, of, of migrant workers, um, predominantly from Eastern Europe, was pretty slow uh, compared to Germany's migration crisis. Bear in mind um, that over the last year in Germany, over a million, probably well over a million, um, people have suddenly uh, come into uh, a Germany and they're not Europeans, they're from predominantly um, the Middle East and Asia. So it's a diff- very, very different order of uh, magnitude. Imagine if one million people had suddenly turned up in Britain um, over the, the course of the year. And I think you, that gives you a flavour of the difference in this discussion, the migration crisis discussion, and the broader, more slow, more gentle if you like, discussion about EU free movement. Now, one of the arguments, particularly about immigration, is we can't 
control immigration without having sovereignty, that Britain, Britain doesn't decide its own rules on immigration. This idea of sovereignty, and David Cameron talked about an illusion of sovereignty, mm. whether we're in or out, it's... it's so a lot of people quite a vague concept, and yet it could prove quite crucial during the course of this referendum debate. Well, I was just staggered when he said it was illusory, and it's a motif that's been repeated uh, since he uh, said that. This idea that uh, sovereignty is not important. Now, it's a kind of common belief uh, among uh, uh, the uh, the commentariat that people are not interested in sovereignty. Their eyes glaze over. What they're interested in is stopping immigration. And on the face of it, that's absolutely correct. But if you ask people, does it matter to you or not if this country has power over its own future? Does it matter to you if this country has no power of self-government? Does self-government matter? People would say, well, of course it matters. And it's quite a powerful argument. It's, it's, it's one an that extremely the, powerful argument. the Leave campaigns could really play up to. It's an extremely powerful argument. Now, I'm fascinated by this business that the Prime Minister says it's not self-government that matters. It's not sovereignty that matters. It's the ability to make deals. Now, first of all, that's a nonsense because self-government is not deals. Deals is different from self-government. But here you have the echo of what the political elite in Britain has been saying for the last half century since, I think, 1945 and certainly since Suez in 1956, when Britain basically collectively in its elites decided that it was powerless. It had lost its empire. It was demoralised. It was bankrupt after the war. And it could never again manage by itself. And so it had to find some kind of protector. And it saw that protector being the EU. It is a deeply ingrained belief in the British political class that Britain essentially can't manage to do anything by itself. Now, what a council of despair. And so you have the <laughs> British Prime Minister, a Conservative Prime Minister, heir to Thatcher, not, saying... We can't make any trade deals by ourselves. What, suddenly nobody wants to buy our goods? More people want to buy our goods in Europe than the other way around. Here you have the British Prime Minister saying, we're going to be at more risk from ISIS and all these terrible Islamist plotters outside Europe because we're not going to be able to make the security arrangements with our current European partners. What, France, Germany and all the rest suddenly will be saying, oh, Britain's outside the EU. You know what? We don't need the British intelligence service and what it knows. We can do without Britain. This is ridiculous. The idea that we are supplicants at the table and that we bring nothing to the table is in itself absurd. But the fact is that Britain is very strong. It is, you know, the world's fifth largest economy. It has stuff and it does stuff which Europe wants to have. We're in a strong position. There's no reason why an independent Britain can't make its own deals at more favourable terms, on more favourable terms than we have at the moment. And finally, this idea that, you know, we only have power inside Europe. First of all, we don't. And we can see that from the fact that the Prime Minister went with his begging bowl. He adapted his begging bowl before he even started on the basis that he couldn't get what he really wanted. And he was sent away basically with virtually nothing. And now, even worse, because now, having gone through all this performance and put Europe through all this agony, if the British people now say, you know what, we're going to stick with nurse for fear of something worse, the EU is going to say, that's it. Never again will we give Britain anything because they've They've, they've used their strongest card and now they're over. They have no more power over us because we know that they now no longer have the threat that was hanging over us and them that Britain would pull out. So we will now have no power at all. Now, Michael, on this issue of sovereignty, David Cameron came under a lot of pressure from Boris Johnson and Michael Gove to, in some way... 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Trying British sovereignty in law in some way. We we were promised that it was expected that he might have announced it on the Sunday after the summit on the Andrew Marr show, that came and went. He appeared in the Commons, that came and went. And there's, there's still no sign of it, partly, I suspect, because we already know that Boris and Gove are outers, so there's no point trying to do anything to win them over. But, but where are we on this, this idea of enshrining sovereignty? So it depends who you ask, and there's always a political element of the answer is the complicated answer. But a lot of people say it's all about, do we change the original act which saw basically Britain enter the what is now the EU to say that our courts have supremacy or is it something less than that is it less than changing that original act in terms of the politics of it the sovereignty argument as Melanie says is very powerful to conservative MPs at least because you are getting quite a lot of uh, conservatives who feel quite loyal actually to David Cameron who simply think that the sovereignty question is why they have to campaign to leave. So if you take someone like John Hayes, for example, who was a close advisor and ally of the Prime Minister, his sort of flank on the right, really, his connection to the right of the party, an arch-loyalist and an arch-eurosceptic, it's the sovereignty question that makes him feel he has to campaign for leave. So it's very powerful within the Conservative Party. And Bruno, from your perspective in Brussels, is there anything that Cameron can do to enshrine British sovereignty? Or is, that, I mean, is it just impossible while also being part of the EU club? Uh, I, think, I think David Cameron can, can make some kind of constitutional commitment to involve uh, judges. And the EU like judges a lot because <laughs> judges are uh, unelected um, state officials, so it very much fits into the, <laughs> into the big vision. The real problem, the real problem um, of the act that, that Michael was talking about, the Community, uh, European Communities Act of 1972, for Eurosceptics, but also in a way for the EU as well, is the issue of popular sovereignty. So it's parliamentary sovereignty that that act really kind of trumps and that, that overthrows. And the whole EU ethos, as, as Melanie was saying, mistrusts this idea of popular sovereignty that people can decide. And it's particularly suspicious that if that people start um, deciding questions of their relationships with um, other countries and there's this sort of myth, this idea that popular passions, the passions of irrational um, voters will, will lead to another sort of 1933-style Germany kind of event. So they're very suspicious of popular sovereignty. So I don't think there's much um, David Cameron can do about that. I think the EU also has a real sovereignty question because look at Schengen. They said, pool your sovereignty on borders and you can have a passport-free um, travel zone. Now, Germans don't feel very sovereign at the moment because one million people 
turned up in their country and they didn't have a lot of choice about it. So the EU has a pooled sovereignty issue, which is a lot of Europeans do not feel empowered um, by the EU. They feel the EU has allowed the world to uh, inflict unpleasant events on them. And Bruno, what is the mood in Brussels, the, sort of the, the week after the, the night before? Do people just want the British problem to go away? Do they think that Cameron got a good deal, a bad deal? What's the, what's the sort of, the now the dust is settling a bit, what's the mood? I think um, it's, it's true that, that David Cameron got the best deal that he could um, possibly expect, and, um, but I think that's also what kind of worries people as well, because they know if you read the deal, you can see it's not altogether all that brilliant so it kind of confirms um, in a lot of people's imaginations that the 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 eu is not a a sort of realm um, in which good things in which good things happen i think people are really worried about the referendum they're really really worried particularly because of people um, like boris johnson who has a a sort of mythical significance uh, far beyond his political weight here in brussels and because he's part of the brussels elite his his father was a european civil servant he went to european um, schools and then he came here and worked for the telegraph and 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 uh, created lots of very imaginative sort of bent banana stories so his, his, his sort of reputation really lives on here in brussels so when he came out for the for, for, for the um uh, leave camp even though everyone knows he's not really um against um the eu people really did uh, tremble here they're really really nervous about what happens um in the british referendum because if Britain does vote to leave the EU, that means an EU crisis. It won't just be um, Britain having to renegotiate its uh, relationship with the rest of Europe. It means there will be a very, very profound European Union crisis. You talk to Dutch officials and and, and they're really worried that the EU could be an intolerable place to be. Um, after Britain uh, leaves and other countries have similar views for different reasons. Michael, let's talk about the the potential for crisis after the EU referendum in British politics. Which one? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Everywhere you look, everywhere you look, there is uh, a sort of new front opening up for the Tory party, whether it's, you know, Boris Johnson choosing to go for out, the fact that at the moment the party seems, the Tory MP seems split almost 50-50 in terms of in and out. So what, what, what do you think happens on June the 24th and beyond? Well, depends what the result is clearly but I think what I'm trying to get at here is the fun really starts after the EU referendum comes in if you're a political junkie like us. So you've got a Conservative Party that will be torn whatever happens. You'll have uh, Cameron's sort of leadership qualities not seeping away but really gushing away at that point with everyone looking at who's going to be the next leader. You've got UKIP figuring out well what are we after an EU referendum? What do we even do? Do we exist? Uh, you've got a Labour party on the floor, the Lib Dems an asterisk really and so in, f- in footballing parlance you're, you're asking yourself who's going to come along and take this game by the scruff of the neck? Yeah and who, who, who do you think comes along? So obvious person to, to look at is Boris Johnson but we've seen just days after Cameron uh, revealing his EU deal, Boris Johnson in the chamber this week, uh, when the PM took him on, really looked quite a diminished, lonely figure. Yeah. And already people are starting to ask, well, is this really the guy we want to we want to turn to as leader? I'm increasingly thinking on the Conservative side that it might well be someone we've simply not thought of yet. Uh, who that could be? Someone from the 2015 intake seems like a stretch. 2010, well, maybe someone like Pretty Patel. Could it be? What is for sure is every party has a crisis, and it's not clear how on earth they solve it. Melanie, what's what, what's your take on Boris Johnson? 
I don't buy this idea that every single thing Boris does is completely and utterly unprincipled. I don't have much time for what he <laughs> apparently stands for. It does seem to change the whole time. But nevertheless, I think he possibly is quite um, torn, mm. as he says he is. And I think that's probably true because there are many aspects to Europe and in his background, which I think pull him in different directions. And, and, and by being torn, it, it suggests he's sort of thought about it. Some, Sometimes there's people who are so definite about in or out. Some, there's something a bit sort of suspicious about... Yes, it's a very complicated issue. Yes, and, and I, th- I think you know, I don't know. I think all politic, all politicians, are probably some kind of combination of principle and what they actually believe and self-interest. Yeah, and the balance varies politician by politician. And I don't think Boris is is any different from that. I think though that what he, you know, as you say, as as Mike, Michael said, he did look a diminished figure. I also think he's probably more vulnerable than he seems because uh, I think he's probably very nervy about whether he's damaged himself. And he could well have damaged himself. And I, I don't think he's a kind of robust figure uh, in in that sense. But the effect he has on the public is something quite different mm. from the way we're all looking at him. And to the public, he is he is totemic. And, you know, they do listen to him and they will believe him. He's a bit of a Donald Trump figure. You know, if he can, if he says, you know, fantastic things which are absurd, people actually say, well, that just shows what a great guy he is. And so I think that he has the potential to turn a lot of people into the out camp. Whether he has the potential to turn enough people I don't know. Project Fear is going to play very big in this, as it did in the first referendum, which I am unfortunately old enough to remember, uh, this idea that, you know, everything's going to fall apart if we come out. And that may be just too much even for Boris to, to take on. So I think he I think he will have an effect on the referendum campaign. Will the Conservative Party turn to him eventually? You can't really tell. If they think, it all depends, you know, if they think... Boris will enable us to win the next election. Yes, they'll turn to him. If in the course of the referendum campaign, he doesn't seem as if he's going to be able to lead the people into the wilderness or into the promised land, rather, then um, they won't. And there'll be something interesting about how if, if he does take part in a TV debate or is really put on the spot on things like national security and the economy, he, although he's very clever, he can sometimes just dismiss something as, or whatever it is, well, uh, without looking like a man on his on, on who's on top of the detail. Absolutely. I mean, I personally don't care for his political style and his political approach at all. Yeah. Um, and I personally would feel very uncomfortable if he was leader of the party, of, a, of, a, of, of the Conservative Party and a potential Prime Minister. I have to say, I mean, you know, this is close to home in this in this environment. But I don't know why people keep writing off Michael Gove. Well, th- I think because he does. <laughs> does he? <laughs> well, he, he does in public keep he does. Yes, he does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In public he does. But, I'm I mean, not, I'm if not want, sure. If you want someone who is, you know, outside the, the, the what is now the conventional hurly-burly of politics, people who, you know, politicians who are entirely governed by self-interest, politicians who have no sense of history, who never think about anything, who are completely devoid of any kind of, of gravitas... You've got somebody there. (laughs) And he's actually made a rather brave decision recently, um, you know, to stand against his great friend and his great patron. And, you know, Michael Gove was a great moderniser. He was the the Cameroon to his fingertips. This takes takes quite some character to do what he's done. And people write him off because he doesn't look like a prime minister in waiting. Well, what does that mean? Does Boris? I mean, for goodness sake. He's not also universally popular with well, teachers. That's, that's the issue. Well, <laughs> all, more the, than, all the public. More generally. than that, it's uh, just as Boris has an X factor. 
that is there and measurable and very real, which means that if he gets on the ballot paper for the party, I think he'd be Prime Minister. Michael Gove has a negative, a measurable negative, uh, amongst the public. Um, I agree with everything you said, and he's the one figure who comes out of this with real credit, I think. Um, but in terms of that wider question, he's got some work to do, I think, to, to improve his reputation. And just, uh, Bruno, um, on UKIP, what, what do you think happens to UKIP? You've, you've probably seen them in close quarters for a lot longer than uh, Nigel Farage's profile has been rising in, uh, back here in the UK. What do you make of UKIP? Do they, do they cease to exist, whatever the outcome? Um, I, think, I, think, I think Nigel Farage lost his mojo during the, the general election. Um, I think that's the perception. I think in, certainly in terms of, of knowing him, that, that seems to um, be the case. And I think that he and I think UKIP are hoping to get their mojo um, back with the referendum. And I suspect they sort of want the referendum to be a remain vote, but very, very, very close. And they can use that, that sort of clo- closeness and use the campaign to sort of rebuild themselves. In the same way um, that the SNP... So I think people, people here in Brussels are much, much less frightened of UKIP than they used to be. They were terrified for a while with Jeremy Corbyn because they were worried um, that a Labour was going to move away from the sort of Peter Mandelson, Tony Blair approach uh, on Europe. So they've all breathed a very, very big sigh of relief that it appears that, as though Mr Corbyn is going to suppress his uh, Euroscepticism <laughs> uh, and be Blairite um, on the referendum. So I think in terms of political parties, that, that's what they were most worried about in the referendum, that sort of traditional Labour Euroscepticism, the original British version, would somehow re-emerge under Corbyn. So they breathed a big sigh of relief, and I suspect they think that... Uh, uh, Nigel Farage has had his day. And I'm not sure that Nigel Farage is necessarily going to get his mojo back by appearing on a platform with George Galloway either, but that's that's probably an entirely uh, different discussion. Um, just before uh, we go, it's time to do the new Times Red Box sweepstake when ah. we started it last week, asking all of the panellists to predict what percentage of the vote Remain is going to get on uh, June the 23rd. Let's start with you, Bruno. What do you think? This is what um, you think I... will happen. I, I think uh, Remain will get 52%. 52%. Very good. We are, we are allowing up to two decimal points, if uh, if you want to be very pedantic about it. Uh, Melanie, what do you think is going to happen? Remain. Remain. Uh, 47. 47. And Michael? I'm going to say Remain 54.33. 54.33. Uh, when we uh, put this out on Twitter last week, we had a, quite a big uh, range from about sort of, I think the highest was 60, 65, something like that. Uh, one per- person predicted 2% for Remain, which I think was probably <laughs> optimism triumphing over uh, well, political think, calculation. I think they would take that. <laughs> uh, you've, so, got uh, in, you've got to bear in mind that in 2004, um, the, the amount of people in France saying they would vote for the EU constitution was around 70%. Uh, when they actually voted, 55% voted against. So the campaign could make a big difference. And it's going to be a long old campaign as well. We've got four four months of this to look forward to. Uh, But for now, thank you for listening to the Red Box podcast from The Times. For more on everything we've been discussing, you can go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box, where you can also sign up for the Red Box morning email briefing, uh, which I get up early and read all the boring papers so you don't have to. Uh, But for now, from Bruno, Melanie, Michael and me, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.